Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is Jonah, chapter 3, Repentance. Jonah, chapter 3. Chapter begins, or I should say the previous chapter ends, with Jonah being regurgitated onto the land, live and well. Everybody's surprised. And now he's willing to listen to what God has to say to him. Smart boy, right? So here we are. Are you ready? Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Everybody say, Praise God for second chances. God. Yes, God is a God of second chances. Doesn't mean he always gives them, doesn't mean he's obligated in any way. He's not obligated at all to you. You understand that, right? Except to throw you in hell. I, I, know, I know that's kind of, you know, you expect to hear that when you're in church. So that's just the Baptist preachers. No, I'm just telling you, that really is the sober truth. He's not obligated to you for any other thing. That you go to heaven is because he found it in his heart, but he didn't find it in yours, I promise you that. He found it in his heart to, to make sure you go there, and that's thus the, thus the sending of his son and the celebration of, and I think I broke G, Joseph's hand here earlier, so I really apologize there, Joseph. Yeah. I knocked him over. We're going to say that it was the kids, right, guys? But uh, it was actually me. Just to be honest, start the church off. So anyway, Jonah the second time, and here's the command of God, arise, go to Nineveh. It's the same thing. Notice, it's the same thing. He didn't get a different call. So you ran because you didn't like the first thing that God tell you. Guess what? He's not going to change that order for you. You get a recall and another chance, it's going to be the same thing. You should expect it from him. Because God's not sovereignly backed up uh, his sovereignty for your sake. And so just let it be what it is. Anyway, so the word of the Lord came to him a second time, but it was the first call that he gets. Notice, arise, go to Nineveh, same thing he heard. The great city and proclaimed to it a proclamation, which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose, smart boy, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days walk, that is to go around it and through it. Uh, estimates are later on, it's going to say that the, the city was exceeding 200,000 estimates, or as much as 600,000, the number of people that lived in the city at this time. And that's a lot back then. And we may not think that's that big of a city, but it was huge uh, during this time of uh, history. So Jonah began to walk through the city, one day's walk, and he cried out, very short sermon. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. God's going to judge this place, he says. you got 40 days ticking off. The people of Nineveh believed in God. Everybody say, wow, I can't believe it. That's an amazing miracle. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth. I mean, they weren't messing around here. The greatest for the, to the least of them. When the word reached the king, it says, of Nineveh, the promoter of all the evil they did there, this guy, it says, arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, issues a proclamation that says in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man or beast, herd or flock, taste a thing. Not, do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered in sackcloth, lest men, and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hand. And who knows, that's good theology by the way, God may turn and relent. Notice, and we know that God will relent is not what he says. Because God is not obligated to you. God is not obligated to you even in your repentance. Is he obligated to do anything for you? God is not obligated to you. He doesn't owe you anything. I should say, nothing good. If you really know how it works, he doesn't owe you anything good. So all the good in your life has been because God has been gracious to you. So quit getting mad at him, not helping anything. Who knows if God may turn, right? 
and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. And when God saw their deeds, again, where does God find the reason to change and be kind to us? He finds it within himself. God is a kind and compassionate, and that's the reason why you and I are alive and have a hope of heaven. When God saw their deeds, they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it because God is, uh, we hang completely upon the nature of God. If the nature of God was not like this, then we would all be toast, to be sure. So we're going to be looking at this chapter here in just a second, but first of all, I want to tell you about a guy in a bar staring at his drink for hours. Did nothing. Didn't talk to anyone. Didn't converse with anyone. Didn't taste the drink. Just sat there staring at the drink. Sat there long enough doing that very thing till the people, the other patrons that were there began to take notice. In fact, everyone there pretty much was noticing. And they were all wondering what he's doing, asking the question, is this guy crazy? Is he catatonic? What has happened to this guy? And finally, one of the rabble-rousers, one of the troublemakers, uh, if you want to find people like that, go to a bar because... If they're not already, you're getting that much stuff in them, they will turn into that. So this guy comes up, this troublemaker, and he grabs the drink from the front of the guy, snatches it from the front of him, and just guzzles it. Well, the guy that had been sitting there for hours just staring at this drink just completely loses it. And what I mean by that is he completely just breaks down and starts bawling like a baby, just crying his eyes out. Of course, that's not the reaction that the troublemaker was expecting necessarily. It's, uh, he feels bad. He's like, you know, it's worse than getting punched or whatever. He just feels terrible. And so he puts his hand on his shoulder and says, listen, man, I'll, I'll, I'll buy you another one. Don't worry about it. He says, you don't understand. So what? He says, you don't understand. This has been the worst day of my life. He said, really, what happened? He says, well, this morning my clock didn't go off. And I was an hour late to work. So when I get into, get into work, the boss fires me on the spot. He says, and, and no sooner do I get myself together and my stuff together to go down and get in my car that someone has stolen my car. So I call, I call a cab and I get in the cab and he takes me near my home and I leave my wallet in the cab. He says, then I get into my house and I find out my wife has left me. So I've come down to this bar and I've been contemplating and ended it all. And I've been sitting here for a long time just thinking, thinking, thinking. And then lo and behold, the poison I prepared for myself, you drank it, he said. <laughs> Ever have a bad day? <laughs> That's a bad day. Jonah had a bad bunch of days. And sometimes it's true, not always, but sometimes it's true, oftentimes it's true. Bad days are a lot of our fault, aren't they? It was true for Jonah. Jonah had, had a bad day, which turned into a bad three days and three nights inside of a fish, which got brighter after he got thrown up on the beach, but only to get darker now because the people repented and he didn't like that. And that was his whole issue to begin with. And so Jonah had a string of bad days and mainly he was, he was the cause of all those things. So there are lots of, by the way, preacher vignettes that I'm concerning the plight of Jonah that I'm, I'm not going to preach on. But I, I wanted to go over them just briefly with you because they're so good. I hate to leave them out. So here's some of them that are, some of them are good. Some of them are preachable and the other ones are just, just great. And some of these I invented and some of them I read. So just see if you can guess. First of all, number one, Jonah ran away, right? Then he ran back, and then he ran with God. That'll preach. I think it will. Here's the second one. Jonah rebels vehemently, and then he responds obediently, right? And then the Ninevites repent dramatically, and then God relents mercifully. That, that'll definitely, by itself, it all stands by itself. Now, I, you can probably guess I didn't come up with that one, but you may be thinking that I may come up with the next one. So Jonah is thrown over, right, overboard, 
and then he is thrown up. And then the Ninevites were thrown in to repentance, and then Jonah was thrown in to a tailspin. I thought it worked. Uh, I'm not preaching on that. And here's the fourth one. Jonah was uh, regurgitated, and then he was recalled, and then he was recommissioned, and then uh, all for the sake of the Ninevites' repentance, which resulted in Jonah's uh, regret. Uh, Like I said, I think it preaches. Uh, I, I would say this, though. Instead of calling him Jonah, I think we ought to change his name to uh, Bartholomew. Bartholomew. I think we ought to change his name to uh, Ralph uh, Amaya. How about that? By the way, the correct term is not throwing up or barfing or ralphing. It's involuntary, emesistic uh, reaction. So from now on, you get sick. I had an involuntary, emesistic reaction. I apologize. So the fish has an involuntary, emesistic reaction And that's how Jonah gets back on the beach. And I thought I would just throw that up for you, (laughs) consideration. So I'm sorry. I have too much time to think. The big story, Jonah, of course, isn't Jonah. The big story is that the Ninevites repent. That's the big story. That's the amazing thing, not Jonah's rebellion. I mean, we, we should expect Jonah's rebellion because we're also rebels ourselves, are we not? So the sailors throw Jonah overboard and they feel better. The fish throws up and he feels better. The the Ninevites repent and they feel better. And God relents and he feels better. Who doesn't feel better? Only the guy who bears the name of the whole book. Isn't that right? He's the cause of all this stuff. He never feels better. Because, again, uh, his main problem is himself. So, again, we aren't surprised at Jonah's rebellion, are we? No rebels here. Not a single person here who felt the tinge or the pull of God and didn't do the thing that God wanted him to do. Not a single person here who knew the right way and chose the wrong way. Not a one of us here. Isn't that awesome? Let me just say that if anybody's here that's like that, we need you to leave. We really do. Because we, we, there's a hospital for the sinners here, really, and we don't have time for perfect people. And, uh, and um, anyway, uh, Jonah was certainly not perfect. So I, I, we shouldn't be surprised at his rebellion. I mean, come on, guys. We do that. I mean, it was big. I mean, it'd be terrible to have my personal rebellion written in the scriptures for all posterity. But let's, let's have some grace on him. He's like us. We understand him. We understand his, uh, his bent, his, his uh, uh, judgmentalness, his, his prejudice. I mean, we understand that. It's not right. It's, we don't agree with it, but we know what it's like because we've been there definitely before. We shouldn't also be surprised, should we, at the grace of God? Right? God doesn't owe us anything. Grace, someone said unmerited grace. It's like, that's redundant. Grace is never merited. Merit means you earned it. Grace means you didn't. So I'm not a good person, but God's being kind to me. Yeah, that's called grace. I'm not a good person, but I still wake up out of hell. That's called grace. God is being gracious to you. You don't earn it. He's not giving you what you do deserve. He's giving you what you don't deserve. And that is, by the way, definition of grace. So, so we're not surprised, we shouldn't be, if you're in the Bible at all, that God is gracious. He really is. And the more you come to understand sin and God's position on sin, the more gracious you will understand him to be. And like I said, he does not owe you anything good. So we shouldn't be shocked at Jonah's rebellion. We shouldn't be shocked at, at God's grace. We should be absolutely blown away by Nineveh's repentance. Where have you ever seen anything like that? We're in, in the Bible, and it's not there. Go ahead and look, but you don't have time. It's not there. Do you find repentance like this? 
whole hog, top to bottom, side to front, doesn't make any difference. Every last person in this city repents. Where in the history of humanity have you seen people turn like this? And again, you're not, we're not talking about you know, a halfway decent city that just had some issues with God and needed to turn back to God, maybe like the 90% of the people in this room, 100% including me, do. We're talking about people who had absolutely had committed to go the other direction. Absolutely committed. They were, they were the most wicked people. One of the greatest miracles, listen to me, in all of Scripture is what you're reading right here in chapter 3. That these people actually repented. They actually gave God the benefit of being able to do what he loves to do, which is show mercy and grace as opposed to judgment that he predicted for them. They, that, that's, that's the amazing thing. It would, be as, it would be tantamount to me 10 years ago saying to you that uh, unbeknownst to anyone else, Jimmy Carter, remember him? What, 38? What, what was he in the order of presidents? Can't remember. Jimmy Carter is still alive. But let's say 10 years ago, he had flown unbeknownst to anyone to Afghanistan. Why would he do that? Gets himself in trouble and gets captured by the Taliban, according to this story, and goes and has a meeting with none other than Osama bin Laden, who had been alive 10 years ago, and meets with not only al-Qaeda, but also uh, uh, the Taliban and Osama bin Laden. And here's how the story goes. He preached the gospel to them, and they all were saved, baptized publicly, and repented of their sins and changed their ways. Now, what would you think about that story? Would you be blown away by that story? These people have made the world a killing field. These people have made our lives tough. These people have made, we all get frisked at the airports because of these people, right? We get, we get hemmed in because of these people and decisions that they're making. Well, listen, as blown away as you would be if that story were true, and unfortunately it's not. It's, this is a bigger story. Because I'm telling you, the Ninevites make Al-Qaeda look like Santa and his elves and his eight tiny reindeer. These guys, they, they took terror to a whole different level. You want to talk about abusive. You want to talk about horrible. You want to talk about evil. This is the greatest miracle I would submit to you, among the greatest miracles in the entire scriptures, that these people actually turn back to God. And so I don't want us to consider this miracle together, uh, the Ninevites and their repentance, and uh, what it implies to us. It implies a number of things for us. And one of them we've already gone over. This is number one here. And we're going we're to give it to you in the sense of a question. Does this mean, this miracle of the Ninevites, their repentance? Does this mean that God stoops down to use those who once rejected his calling? Does this mean that God, uh, uh, even those who turned a deaf ear to his word and ran from his diso- in disobedience like, like Jonah did? Does this, does this book mean that God actually does still care for people like that? That if you run as a Christian, it's not just over with for you. That you can just run so far that you can never be bought, brought back. Is, or, or, or is it true, because of Jonah, that no, you, that's not true. You can't run too far. Does that mean that? Yes, it does. It means that, listen, if he went and got Jonah and pulled him out of a fish and gave him a recall after a regurgitation, I have to say that, let me tell you something. He can bring you back. And you're not too far. And you have it not on, the preacher promised me, I don't know, you got it on the Bible. Always base everything on the scriptures. We have a story of a man who got this, the very same thing. And talk about a rebel. Man, he went the total opposite direction. And God brought him back and gave him the same call again. So does God stoop down to use those who have rejected his calling? Absolutely. Absolutely. Number two. 
Here's an important one. Can God reach hopeless causes in our world today? According to the story of Jonah, what's the answer? Yes. Talk about hopeless. Ninevites. They were completely hopeless. They were completely outside of the possibilities. Can God change people that we would never think he could change? Yes. Here's a bigger question. Maybe a searching question. Can God change people that we hope he doesn't change? Is there some people maybe in your life that you hope you don't see when you get there? Maybe, maybe, um, maybe they fall under the headings of Taliban and Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden and all, you know. There's some really evil people out there. And honestly, I gotta, if I've got to be honest, I've got to raise my hand and say, there's a part of me that wants them to get theirs. Really bad sometimes. Super bad. And so, so is it possible... That God could even reach those kind of people. The alcoholic, abusive parent, the, the abusive spouse, the, the deranged neighbor who makes your life difficult, the criminal rotting in prison, the, the person who makes your life miserable. Can God reach people like that? There's not a hopeless cause. If they are breathing, there is hope. If they're still alive, there is hope. God, if God can reach the Ninevites, he can reach anybody Again, talk about deranged, talk about criminal, talk about wicked, the most violent, the most unrighteous, the most prideful, uh, lived completely in disregard to God. They controlled the world with cruelty. They spread terror everywhere. By the way, you know where Nineveh was? Northern Iraq. Still there. The ruins are still there. Which, by the way, okay, so let's, let's say, which is just, it's just across the border from, from the northern part of, of Syria today. So if I could snap my fingers, maybe, maybe I should give you this op- option. If I snap my fingers right now and said, let's all have church today in northern Iraq, would you want to go? Not me. Your life is not worth much there, especially as a Christian. Snap your fingers and go to one of the places where life is worth hardly anything because of these uh, Muslim terrorists, these, these, these jihadists, these radical Muslims. Let me tell you something. Guys, that we need to know based upon the book of Jonah is there's great hope for them. There's great hope. And I know if you're like me, the hope has been is that they get theirs, right? And we bomb the heck out of them. Listen, you don't change people by killing them. You change people from the heart. And the heart of God, listen, is to reach them and change them. And according to the book of Jonah, he can. He can. There is hope for people like that. There is hope for people who committed to destroying the whole world and making our lives miserable. There is hope for people like that. And maybe there's a part of us that's hoping not, right? Sometimes, can we be honest? But I'm telling you, the heart of God is always hoping, always reaching. There is, there is hope for them. God can reach the hopeless causes of our world. Number three, does this mean now, with respect to all this, that we're supposed to be gracious and compassionate as well, since that's who our God is, and we claim we have the label of belonging to Christ? Or am I supposed to be the same thing as him? Everybody shake your head. Yes. Jonah is the epitome of how not to treat a fellow sinner. He didn't want to go, he didn't want to preach them, and he got mad when God forgave them. Reminds me of a story I read of a couple who... um, they were uh, on holdover overseas flight, and they were hoping to get on. They'd been waiting for more than an hour, the possibility of getting on this overbooked plane. 
And the flight attendant finally called him over. She said, I've got great news for you. This is your lucky day. She said, kind of in a hushed tone. She said, I found two seats. They're right next to each other. And most importantly, they're in first class. And I can give you these seats with no, you don't have to pay any more money. They were like, absolutely, we want to take it. So overseas flight, I mean, you get to ride in this, basically a recliner. Anybody rode first class? I never have. But I'm, I'm upset at everyone who has, just so you know. Raise your hands, I need to know. Because I walk past all of you thinking, ah, you ever flown overseas? Oh my goodness, no leg room. You got long legs like mine. Can't sleep, it's loud. Lights are on everywhere. First class, you've got your own recliner, fully reclines. You've got plenty of leg room. You've got plenty of elbow room. Coffee is actually hot. It was actually brewed in this century. Uh, food from a menu, right? All kinds of reading materials. You've got an in-flight phone. You've got computer access. You've got all these things. These people were so excited. So they, they climb on the plane, and they're kind of going through, and, and they start realizing maybe we're kind of looking like you know, we don't belong here. And so they begin to calm down. They begin to sit around. They, they decided between themselves, let's see if we can find someone else on the plane who does, in the first class who doesn't belong, a misfit. So they began to look around, and they, they finally recognized, they both, both, both said, who do you think? I, I think it's this guy. And his wife said, yeah, I think it's that guy as well. This guy was walking around the whole cabin of the first class just in his stocking feet, just like a kid at Christmas, you know, just kind of all looking at all kinds of stuff. And they thought, this guy is not fitting in very well. And then he was rifling through all the magazines and the books and stuff, but not really actually reading any of them, playing with the in-flight flown, and, and then, uh, but not actually calling anybody. I don't know if he knew how or whatever. And so uh, they were watching him. They're thinking, probably this is his first time in first class just like us. And, and it's, what sealed the deal for them is that in the morning when they were serving breakfast, the, the, the stewardess were coming around with, everybody gets their own little table if you've never ridden first class. I only walked through it. First, they got this little table. And they come around, they came around with, everybody got their own little white tablecloth to go on the table. And so they were placing their white tablecloths down at everybody's table. And so they come up to there watching this guy, and the stewardess comes down to put a tablecloth on his table. And so as she places the tablecloth on his table, he takes one corner of the tablecloth and tucks it in his shirt as a napkin. You're from the redneck part of the town. They know. <laughs> sure enough, he's a misfit. I want to I call your attention, if you will, uh, to keep a watchful eye out for the misfits, let's call them together, of grace. The misfits of grace, the ones you're pretty sure will not make it. The ones that you're pretty certain you will never see in heaven. The misfits of grace, the one you never think could change, you never think would change, or maybe you hope would never change. Because like Jonah, you have a prejudice against them because of the way they treated you or the way they've made you feel. Keep an eye on them for two reasons. Number one, because I believe that is where our Savior's eyes are. Not to say they are on everybody. But I think his eyes are particularly on those who are the furthest from that reach of grace. His eyes are on them. Why? Because he died for them. He died for their sins. He loves them. Maybe you don't. But he does. He, maybe you don't. He wants them to be with him. He wants them to receive mercy and grace just like he did the Ninevites. He wants them to receive that more than he wants them, more than for sure he wants them to receive his judgment. So one, number one reason is I want you to keep your eye on them because I think that's where your Savior's eyes are. And number two reason is because anytime you have a thought that you're superior to them, they will remind you that you're just as much a 
misfit as they are. You don't got it coming to you any more than, well, you got coming to you. It's the same thing I got coming to them. But God doesn't want that for you. Neither does he want that for them. Keep an eye out for those misfits because God is gracious and compassionate and we need to be the same. Then also the miracle of the Ninevites teaches us their repentance about the nature of repentance in particular. And here's very simply what it is. Repentance is a God thing. How, how is it possible that Jonah preached such a terrible sermon and they all repented because God moved over the city? Bottom line. Repentance is a total God thing. It's a work of God to work in the heart of the sinner, to draw him to himself. And that's what happened in this story. That's what always happens in the story of people being made right with God, is that God is working in their lives and that God is drawing them. Jonah's preaching fits absolutely zero of the how-tos of, of the preaching. First of all, it's way too short. Number two, it is way too judgmental. Number three, there are no ten verses of just as I am for crying out loud. What kind of Baptist is this man, right? At the end of the service, it is about as boiled down to a minimum and unlikely to produce a result as any sermon ever possibly could be. Yet nonetheless, look at the story. That is, again, like I submit to you, this is one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. The turn of these people. So here's what we need to do. We need to stop looking for reasons beyond the move of God as to why these people or anybody ever repents. It wasn't some people say, well, Jonah had a great voice. Where does it say that in here? I don't see that. Or Jonah had a, a, I don't know, there was some kind of environmental disruption of an earthquake that visited them while he was speaking. You know, I mean, maybe, but I don't see it. It ain't in there. So here's what I'm, I should I'm say on a regular basis every time we come across speculation like this. Let it say what it says. And if it doesn't say it, then say, you know what, it doesn't say it. All, all we're relegated to is Jonah simply preached this really abysmal message and the whole city repented because God is doing his work. What is God teaching us? He's teaching us, that's why the scriptures are here, to teach us how things work. To, to teach us not to start relegating, oh well the people came to Christ because this man is a great preacher. Stop saying that. Our pastors are well educated. Stop saying that. Our church looks awesome. Stop saying that. We give the most money to missions. Stop saying that. That's got nothing to do with it. We should do all those things, have all those things, have them in spades. Who cares? But, but, it is the move of God in the lives of people. It's the prayer of, it's the prayer of his saints saying, God, please intervene. It's the prayer of the saints saying, God, please forgive. It's, it's, it's the work of God who works. Either God moves or he doesn't. And people are brought to him as, as a result of it. The big story, again, is Nineveh repents. But the biggest story is that the mercy and grace that comes from God falls upon misfits, sinners just like us. That's the biggest, it's always the biggest story in the Bible. That God actually will forgive me. That I actually can be reconciled with God by just simply turning from where I am right now, from whatever's gotten me here, and turning back to God and saying, God, help. That's the story. That's always the biggest story. You have the most unlikely people in the sake of Nineveh, the most unlikely preacher in the position of Jonah, and yet, boom, you've got the biggest miracle to that respect. You find it maybe in the whole Bible. Certainly in history, to be sure. God has called us to be, called us to recognize that in the Scriptures. He's called us also to be that toward each other. If we're going to plan, if we claim to be the label of Christ in our lives, we have to act like Christ. Some of you are familiar with the, with the name Corey Ten Boom? Anybody? 
a lady who was uh, captured along with the rest of her family because they were collaborating, they were protecting the Jewish uh, people, hiding them in their homes. And uh, the Nazis uh, found them out and put them into concentration camps. Mom and dad went to separate concentration camps, died there. She and her sister, Corey and her sister, went to Ravensbrück in, in, I believe, uh, Poland. And her, her sister died there of malnutrition and uh, because, of poor, because of poor conditions and malnutrition and because of abuse and because of disease. She watched her sister waste away and die. It was a horrible, terrible experience. She came very close to death herself. Uh, two years after the war, so 1945 is the end of the war, 1947, she goes back because God has called her, like, like Jonah, back to the people who mistreated her, back to the people who once, one time she had hated. God called her to go back into Germany and to preach the gospel of God's grace. The, the truth of God's forgiveness, that, that, that God will forgive you no matter what you've done. And so she began to do that obediently. And she went back and been touring and speaking to different people in churches and different meetings and different things. And she was meeting, if you remember the story, maybe some of you read it, maybe you haven't. Uh, she was meeting with a group of people in the basement of a building and it was pretty much full. And she was preaching that God will forgive and that God will take your sin, as the scripture says, and will separate you from your sin as far as the east is from the west. There's no, there's no measure of that. That God, it says in the scriptures, will, will, will bury your sins in the bottom of the sea. So she was preaching this, that God will forgive you. Confess your sins to him. Turn back to God, she was. And she said it was real difficult to get through to the people, because, not because their hearts were hardened, but because they were so convinced that, that no one could ever forgive them for the things that their country had done over the past 15 years. It was just real. She said the German people were really hard because they were just thought they're certain if anybody's going to go to hell, it's got to be us. So, so they were so hard to reach. And so there was very little uh, response in that meeting, she said. And after it was over, she was standing at the back and she was shaking hands with people that were, were leaving the, the, the meeting. And she noticed about four or five people back in the line. If you remember the story, there was a man there in a brown overcoat with a brown cap on. She said, when I saw him and I saw his face, I didn't see a brown cap and a brown overcoat. She said, I saw a blue SS cap. And a blue and skull and crossbones as a necktie around his neck. She said he was one of the guards, one of the worst ones at Ravensbrook. He was one of the ones that was directly responsible for the death of my sister. And here he's coming in the line. It's after the war's over. Here he's coming in the line to shake my hand. And when it gets his turn, she doesn't know what she's going to say or what she's going to do. The first thing he does is he says, you mentioned Ravensbrook. He said, I was a guard there. And I did things that I'm very sorry for. And since that time, I've become a Christian. I've trusted Christ. And it's so great to hear a message that God forgives us and that he places our sins under the sea and that he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. And that all we've got to do is confess our sins and that God forgives us. She was kind of thinking, darn it, I wish I hadn't said that, you know, kind of thing. And um, anyway, he sticks out his hand to her. And he says, uh, he says to her, sister, will you... God has forgiven me. Will you forgive me? He said. And she said, in her heart of hearts, no, of course not. She could see his face. She could see his uniform. She could see her sister wasting away, them not caring, doing nothing for her or anyone else that died in that place, responsible for hundreds of deaths in that place. How could I forgive him? She said. And I was reminded of the same thing that I had said in a previous sermon, which was forgiveness is not an emotion. God doesn't forgive based upon emotion. So one day he's happy, one day he's sad. So that's the way, one day I'm saved, one day I'm not? No. Forgiveness is a decision. Why why is there forgiveness available to even the worst sinners? Because God decided for there to be. Bottom line. Why did Jesus come and die on the cross? Because God decided 
that that would happen. And by the way, before any of us ever existed or ever did anything good or bad, God made those decisions just as sovereign. I've decided that I'm going to forgive them. I've decided that I'm going to offer my son as, a, as, a, as, a, as an offering, as a sacrifice for their sins so that they don't have to pay for their sins, but that Jesus will pay for their sins and they can be forgiven if they just simply trust Christ and ask for forgiveness. So, so she knew that it was not a, an emotion, that it was just a decision. And based upon that, she said, he stuck out his hand, I stuck out mine, and I said to him, I forgive you, brother, from the bottom of my heart. I forgive you. She said it was like being electrocuted. My body was just, I couldn't, I, I mean, the emotions that swept over me, the feelings that swept over me, it was the greatest teaching of God's forgiveness of how he's forgiven us and how we've been enemies of his in our sin, in our rebellion, of how God has done those things for us. And the, and the, the lesson that he taught me in forgiving this single guard that had been responsible for so much terror in my life, God is calling us, listen, God is calling us to be like him. To look at the world like him, not like Jonah. You're going to be anybody in the Bible, don't be like Jonah. As a child of God, as a minister of God, as a servant of God, don't see the world the way Jonah sees it. I want some to be in and I want some to be out. Some are unreachable. Some are untouchable. Some are unchangeable. No. No, not when there's a God in heaven. And there is. There is. Those misfits, those misfits remind you that you are a misfit as well. I want to ask you please to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. We come to a conclusion here looking at the book of Jonah. God has been so gracious to us. God has been so kind to us. Maybe, maybe as a part of our time together as we pray together and as your heads are bowed and eyes closed, I want you to think about maybe the, the person or the group of people or the circumstances or the situations that you thought were hopeless. And I want you to name them before God right now. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe start with yourself. I can't be reached, I can't be redeemed, I can't be changed. That is not true. That is not true. If God can change the Ninevites, if they can repent, so can you. If God can change the Ninevites and they can repent, then that, that person who you think is far outside the grace of God, they're not. That circumstance, those people, that situation... They're not. They're not. God can reach them. God can change them. They can be changed because the grace of God is that big. The Spirit of God is that powerful. Together we need to acknowledge as a church, as, as people meeting together before God, God, you can do anything. God, you can do anything. Sometimes we look at our lives and think that we were somehow a simple convert, and that's not necessarily true. God had to work just as hard on us as he did anyone else. Again, why are we here? Because God, God's Spirit worked in our lives. Because He drew us in His kindness. We weren't looking for Him. He came looking for us. He wasn't lost. We were. He found us. And He's finding people. Sometimes the least likely to be found. God, we thank You so much that You're a finder of the lost. Thank You, God, that You found us. That You found me. That You found the different ones in this room who know Jesus as personal Savior. God, you're the finder of the lost, God, and we're the lost. God, I pray that our hearts would look out to the lost world that's around us that doesn't know you, and we would have the same compassion and, and the same desire for, for grace to fall upon them as we have for, in our own lives, God. They are misfits for sure, but we're no less misfits. 
God, I thank you that the teachings that we learn through this book help us not to be like Jonah with our, our prejudices and our, our desires and, and our thoughts of only certain people can get in and other people are out. God, help us to be like you. Your heart is to see all come to you, that all will repent and be changed. Thank you so much, God, for the message that you've spoken to us today. I pray that we would take it deep into our hearts now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.